From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihira Zazan. Khalil Bendit is away this week. They claim suicide again, and they said he was selling drugs in that busy street where protests took place, and he was detained and then killed in detention. And they claim that, again, he had hanged himself or committed suicide. The key here is the consistency of threatening families, burying them under the cover of the night, and not letting any medical record to exist of cause of death. We have a conversation with Hadi Ghaimi, the executive director of the International Campaign for Human Rights in Iran, about the plight of more than 3,000 people still in detention following the recent nationwide protest in Iran. Later in the program, Linda Dalal Sawaya talks to us about her cookbook, Alice's Kitchen, My Grandmother Dalal and Mother Alice's Traditional Lebanese Cooking. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. On December 28th, Iran erupted in widespread street demonstrations, which lasted more than 10 days. These were the largest protests in Iran since the 2009 Green Movement and came following many years of localized protests by workers, environmentalists, teachers, women rights activists, pensioners, and other disfranchised sector of Iranian society. The demonstrations reflected the deep-seated political and economic grievances driving discontent of the Iranian people, and especially the tens of millions who are struggling to make ends meet. By the time the Iranian authorities crushed the protest, more than 4,000 people had been arrested and at least 25 people were killed during the street protest. Three deaths in state custody have been confirmed. While confirming the reports of the number of protesters killed, Ghulam Hussein Mohseni Ejei, the spokesman for the Iranian judiciary, denied any involvement of the state security forces in the death of protesters, claiming, quote, none were killed by shots from the security forces because they were ordered not to use their weapons, end of quote. Reports from independent organizations dispute this claim. Iranian government has a well-documented history of mistreatment and torture of political prisoners. Most recently, following the crackdown on the Green Movement in 2009, where there were confirmed deaths of political prisoners in state custody, the International Center for Human Rights in Iran has played an important role in documenting human rights violations and raising awareness worldwide for political prisoners in Iran since the 2009 crackdown. In the last few weeks, they have published reports on the treatment of protesters and cyber surveillance by the Iranian regime, as well as campaigning for the release of the thousands of mostly young people still in police custody. Hadi Ghaimi, the executive director 
of the International Campaign for Human Rights spoke with me about the plight of the more than 3,000 people still in detention following the recent nationwide protests in Iran. Regarding an update on the detainees, right now there is a lot of concern within Iran about their fate, and there is very little information trickling out. Basically, the only information coming from the few detainees who are being released or from the families who manage to hear from their loved ones, and they are very few people. So, unfortunately, with this over 4,000 people in overcrowded conditions in prisons, their life and safety is on the line, and the sensitivities are very high, especially after you notice, noted that uh, several of them have died in detention. And those who lost their lives in detention, it's been reported that it has happened under kind of suspicious circumstances. So what can you tell us about yes, those I people? I can tell you is, first of all, the public debate in Iran right now about the fate of the detainees is much more intense than we saw in 2009, when nobody really dared to talk about it. The concerns are at such a high public profile figures that include many members of the parliament. And the reason is because back in 2009, people were tortured, systematically raped, and killed. And when it became public, the authorities in the beginning tried to say these were either suicides or normal cause of death for them. And this time, there's a real pushback against such a fake scenario that would justify the death. But unfortunately, we do see still the authorities claiming that these young men who died were drug addicts and they committed suicide. Yeah, and, and they, say, they say some of them were um, people who had gotten divorced or yeah. they had family problems and some of them were basically, they called them terrorists. In the case of one of these young men who was killed in prison, and they forced um, his father to yeah. give a confession on television. Unfortunately, these are very, very tired scenarios, and there's no credibility to them. We have seen this over and over again. And the reason for our skepticism, and for the skepticism of the Iranian people in believing any of these uh, justifications, is that they are not letting any autopsy or medical examination of the bodies. They're not letting family members to be in possession of the body and even to do a proper burial for them. They're forcing the families to bury the bodies very quickly in designated areas without anyone present except few immediate members of the deceased. All of that points out to their nervousness for the truth to come out. And we've had death in prison in Iran over the years, over and over again. And it always has been followed by a campaign of explaining it either as suicide or personal problems or defamation. So their track record is consistently in 
hiding and uh, not taking responsibility for this death. You have spoken with some of the family members of those who've been detained and some of those who, unfortunately, they lost their lives. One of them is Nematollah Shafi'i. He was a bystander who was shot and killed during the protest in a city in Isfahan province on January 2nd. And his brother told Center for Human Rights, your organization, quote, intelligence ministry agents came to our house and told my mother not to scream and make a fuss. And he said they took my brother's ID and told us to come and pick it up after a few days and to have, quote, a little conversation. Three intelligence ministry agents came and watched us bury him in Sayyid Muhammad Religious Center. How many of these stories are you hearing from family members? You just uh, mentioned one of them in detail, and they're very consistent. We have another case of a young man in in Iraq, who was a street vendor, and similarly, his body was not turned to the family, was taken directly to the cemetery, no autopsy, no medical examination, the family threatened to be quiet, not to talk about it, and they claimed suicide again, and they said he was selling drugs in that busy street where protests took place, and he was detained and then killed in detention. And they claimed that, again, he had hanged himself or committed suicide. The key here is the consistency of threatening families, burying them under the cover of the night, and not letting any medical record to exist of cause of death. And in this particular case, his uncle said for a second I could pull the shroud from his head while he's being buried. And his head had a huge wound on it that looked like someone had hit him with an axe. I mean, it was a completely open wound that could not have been caused by suicide. Nobody going to take a sharp object and hit themselves in the head mm-hmm. as a way of committing suicide. And that he had no drug-related issues in the past. What really hurts this family is at the time when they have lost their loved ones, They see this defamation and false uh, accusations of drug usage or marriage problems or basically character assassination of the dead. And that is what exactly intelligence agents are doing. They're going to families, telling them to keep quiet, and then they're going out in public and uh, performing a character assassination of the deceased who is the victim of torture most probably and was in their detention. That I find very immoral. In my opinion, they have committed murder, cold-blooded murder, Mm -hmm. but to go as far as then engage in character assassination and intimidate families, I have a lot of sympathy for these families who lost their loved ones and now they have to be subject to such a dirty campaign against their loved ones. And the other case that you highlight in your campaign is the case of Saro Qahramani, a 25-year-old man from Sanandaj. Can you talk about yeah. his case? Because his case has yeah. been getting a lot of attention, especially yeah. on social media. Absolutely. And what I'm pleased to say compared to 2009 is that there are many public figures, including celebrities, actresses, literary figures, and uh, 
people who are well known in social media to regular Iranians. They are actually the ones on the forefront of demanding accountability of what is happening to detainees. And the reason Saru Kahramani's case became so prominent on social media is because a fairly prominent Iranian actress used her social media to question his death because it turns out she knew him. He was a working man who had come from Sanandaj to Tehran, apparently, and worked as a waiter in a restaurant frequented by this actress and other people. And he was such a compelling young man that she knew him. She had pictures with him in that restaurant and had become fond of him. So when he went back to Sanandaj and then recently the news of his death came, she was shocked that they're calling him a terrorist and that he had uh, deserved to die as a terrorist. And she then the Iranian authorities challenged that. And the Iranian authorities basically told her to stop posting exactly. on social media and to stop yes. lying about him. Yes, that is unfortunately again the classic repression of critical voices or people who have accurate information like this actress and they want to inform the larger public. They probably have intimidated her and she will be silent, but this social media medium has really given voice to many people to challenge the government and they will be silenced, but I think it is a losing game because more and more people are standing up in social media and challenging the official narrative. That makes the Mm. authorities extremely nervous that they have lost the narrative. Iranian MP uh, Mahmoud Sadiqi, who is a reformist, told a news agency that one of the inmates, quote, who recently died in prison, had told his family that prisoners are being forced to eat pills that make them very ill. So this is another development. So this MP made that claim pretty publicly, and simultaneously we have been able to independently confirm that. Just today we have published Mm -hmm. details of it that are coming to us from inside the prison. I cannot disclose how or who, but we're very confident that the claims that Sadiqi made are credible, and we are getting similar information and publishing it. And that is very disturbing, too. That shows, again, a systematic way of punishing these detainees and endangering their health and safety while in detention. Hadi, in 2009, Kahrizak Detention Center became notorious for the mass detention of protesters. They were reports of torture and rape, and at least three detainees died under torture. And there are fears that people who've been arrested in recent protests could face the same situation and end up in this similar detention centers. Tell us about Kahrizak, first of all. How did that place yeah. uh, come to be? And then what happened to Kahrizak? And right. are we going to see a repeat of the 2009? In 2009 and prior to that, Kahrizak was a kind of a concentration camp in the middle of a very hot and uh, isolated area outside of Tehran that was built to collect and punish drug addicts who frequented the streets of Tehran. And it was 
purposely made very, very harsh where they had metal cages that would pack uh, dozens, if not hundreds of detainees. They would be subjected to water cannons, very bizarre kind of physical punishment, beatings. And in July 2009, when one of the largest demonstrations happened, uh, and hundreds of people were detained in the center of Tehran, then prosecutor of Tehran decided to send them to Kahrizak. And he claimed because the regular prison, Evin, was already overcrowded and didn't have room. So they sent these hundreds of people to Kahrizak and subject them to the same inhumane and extremely cruel conditions as they had been subjecting the drug addicts and uh, criminals prior in that location. So we have a lot of detailed testimony from people who got released from there of literally being packed like sardine into metal cages, being subjected to water pressure, urinating and being buried in their own excrement within Mm. that cage, uh, not being able to breathe, being fed very, very little, being brought to the yard every day and made to do very strange physical punishments, subjected to physical punishments, uh, and even sexual assault on a systematic basis. So it looks like it was a very cruel way of making this young man to regret having ever stepped onto the street. But what happened, three of them in that congestion died, and they tried to cover it up by saying that they had some kind of illness, and they even produced a fake medical record that then that was retracted by the physician who, whose name was put on it. And they could have got away with it, just like they're trying today, the people who committed these atrocities, mm-hmm. except that one of the young men who died turned out to be the son of a fairly prominent Revolutionary Guards commander who did not sit silent and said, my son did not die of uh, natural causes. And he had torture marks all over his body. He had broken bones and teeth all over. So he demanded accountability, and that's the only reason that those three people, those three deaths, got some attention, and the details came out within Iran. And precisely because of that, today there are a lot of people rising up and saying, Let's keep our eye on the detainees in Evin right now, and we don't know where else. 4,000 is a very large number of people to hold. And this is based on their own figures. There might be more. Their own figure, which always should be looked at skeptically. So uh, Kahrizak has become the benchmark of concern whenever protesters are taken away because of the horrible, inhuman atrocities committed against young people who were there. And what I found amazing is that many of those who were subjected to these conditions and survived it have been vocal. Of course, most of them have had to flee the country and become asylum seekers all over the world. But they have given very consistent testimony Mm. uh, since 2009. And that is one reason why even members of parliament cannot sit quiet and are speaking out. And I hope that all of this pressure and attention would lead to immediate release of detainees or probably atrocities of similar level have already taken place that we will slowly find out 
uh, as information trickles out. That's why everyone should be calling for immediate release of these thousands of people. Mm. Every day that they stay out of sight and uh, in a very opaque situation, we could be witnessing atrocities and more deaths. And some members of the Iranian parliament wanted to go and visit Evin prison and they were not allowed. Yes, exactly. The news even came out that uh, last Saturday they're due to go, but they were not allowed, which means we should be concerned what is happening Mm. in there. No question about it. These protests took place in at least 100 cities across the country. And we have seen images and video clips of family members and friends of those who've been detained in front of Evin Prison, notorious Evin Prison. But there are so many other cities where people have been protesting and people have been arrested. How much do we know or how much have you been able to find out about these smaller prisons, smaller Evins across the country? Because sometimes in the past when we heard about prisons in Khuzestan or in other parts of the country, it was really more related to housing um, drug addicts or executing drug addicts in those prisons in Mashhad or in Khuzestan. But what about now? What do we know about the extent of who's in those prisons and how many prisons are out there? Again, not as much uh, information because within Tehran, of course, people have much better knowledge and capabilities how to spread the news and get the news out. And the 4,000 number they've given is supposedly nationwide. We don't know independently how many people are outside of Tehran. But precisely because those provincial prisons are harder to get information about, I am worried that the atrocities happening there could be even more serious because of the kind of impunity that the authorities or people who are holding the protesters feel by operating in the dark. Uh, The most important thing is to make sure those people know that they're being watched. Mm -hmm. And the Iranian government itself, unfortunately, not doing justice. Every day it lets the situation go. It is exposing the life of protesters to great harm and danger. For many years that you have been heading this organization, you have been in contact with, again, some of the political prisoners inside prisons and family members. How difficult and how challenging is it for you to have an open line of communication with these people? Because I would assume that some of them might be afraid of even talking to you. Oh, absolutely. There is a lot of challenges. But as you notice, our organization been doing this for over 10 years, actually. And it has established a certain line of credibility and trust within Iran that allows people to contact us and feel comfortable to bring that information out. Of course, we go out of our way to protect their privacy and security if needed, but there are a lot of people willing to speak on the record under their own name. But we try to protect them if needed. The good news is that they are eager to speak out. Families, lawyers, friends, associates, former detainees, they want to shed light on this. They know when nobody is watching or reporting, it makes things much worse and gives a sense of confidence to the torturer and the prison guard 
and the perpetrators of these atrocities to continue doing what they're doing. And the minimum we can do is shed light on it, expose it, and that does make them nervous. Of course, as a matter of policy, they continue to do that, but we're doing our best to be a voice for the voiceless in Iran because none of the Iran's state media would report on this stuff. And social media, as we just noted, if anybody speaks about it on social media, they can make them go quiet, like the actress we talked who was protesting the death in Sarandaj. I think social media is bringing some major changes in the way people get news and communicate with each other in Iran. Since President Rouhani and his government seem to be a bit more concerned about their image, at least with the Europeans, do you think that what is going to happen or what is happening to these prisoners, to these young men and women in prisons across the country, do you think that they will be forced to release these people and just get it over with so the story yeah. ends here? Or you think we are going to see a repeat of the 2009? In a way, we already are seeing a repeat of 2009, except back then there were a lot of prominent people who were the voice of the protest, were the organizer of the protest. And they plucked these hundreds of prominent people and put them on show track. This time, this was truly spontaneous and grassroots. So they cannot blame it on journalists, politicians, student leaders, human rights lawyers, and so on. But they've got to make sure that these thousands of people are so psychologically and physically suffering during their detention that when they go out, they would never ever think about going back on the street. I think that is what is happening. They have also arrested student activists, labor leaders. That is true. But again, they know very well that these prominent activists, students, so on, were not the reason that these protests erupted. They share the issues that the protesters were bringing up, but they know that the protesters are not even aware of many of these mm. activists. But it's a preemptive strike. Preemptively to mm. make sure they don't support and make it a larger cause. I think that they are eventually going to release all these mostly young protesters, but I'm really worried that between now and then, Uh, they're going to cause so much harm and damage to them that will make them very dysfunctional members of society when they come out. Mm. I wanted to end by asking you about your recent report that reveals Tehran's, you say, new cyber capabilities. The recent unrest in Iran during which the access to Internet was disrupted and Telegram was basically blocked Your organization just published a report called Guards at the Gate, the Expanding State Control over the Internet in Iran. And it details the advances of the Iranian government in controlling cyberspace in Iran and the resulting losses to Internet freedom and privacy. Can you talk about some of the key findings of your report? This report was extremely timely and it had been in work for over a year but this recent protest actually became a very important moment for 
showing the, our findings in practice, which is the findings are basically that the Iranian state has been recognizing that the threat of an uh, open and free Internet poses to them. And in my mind, they have very much copied the Chinese model, which is that let's make Internet a domestically controlled and domestically populated and accessible medium. And that way people, when we cut them off globally, but give them the illusion that they have access to Internet, whereas that Internet is completely domestic content, domestic servers, and under their thumb of control. So our main finding was that something called the National Information Network, a project over a decade old, has moved into high gear actually under Rouhani, and now they have the capability to basically switch on and off access to international internet, meaning internet content that's outside of Iran. They demonstrated that for half an hour at the height of the demonstrations. But on top of that, they have increased their ability to control content and applications. And we saw, again, the most popular application, Telegram, was completely shut down. They even are relying on search engines that they have generated to compete with more well-known search engines, their domestic search engines, that completely will mislead you and give you wrong information and direct you to websites that they actually control but give fake news or fake facts trading as facts about the issue you may be researching. And that's very troublesome because if they continue to enhance those capabilities, they very much would have created an echo chamber of a domestic Internet and being able to keep away independent news and websites that people are relying on and each generation that grows up under those circumstances would be more and more vulnerable mm. in not having access to real information and facts. Mohammad Jahromi, who is the Minister of Communications in Iran, and he has a very sketchy past because he had a role in the 2009 crackdown. He bought tens of millions of dollars of surveillance equipment during the 2009 crackdown. Indeed. And that's very troubling that Rouhani would appoint him as Minister of Communications in his second term. The Revolutionary Guards also are investing huge, huge sums on cyber capabilities and hacking. So there was another report published by Carnegie Foundation just before our report where it focused on attacks emanating from Iran, especially against Iranians in diaspora, as well as whoever else they consider to be a target, whether uh, U.S. interests or banks or other things. So we truly are moving to a new era where cyber warfare, cyber repression, cyber surveillance, the big brother, all of these are converging in the hands of people who are able to use this in a very malicious way. Before letting you go, I'm just curious, in the coming days and weeks, what should we look for 
in terms of what is going yeah. to happen to these prisoners and what people who are outside of Iran can do to support yeah. these prisoners, not only in Tehran, but other cities across the country? Yeah. What we should be looking for is how the domestic pressure builds up in defense of these detainees and make sure that we take note of it. And in terms of action, what is most important right now, you briefly mentioned the role of Europe. Europe has the most leverage on Iran right now. And it is a shame that EU has been fairly silent during the protests or now that we're facing thousands of detainees and their lives threatened. We should be pressuring EU, demanding from EU to take a position and demand from Iranian government to release all the detainees. Most important thing to get young men and women out of the situation they're in and out of danger. Hadi Ghami is the executive director of the International Campaign for Human Rights in Iran, one of the leading groups reporting and documenting human rights violations in Iran and building international coalitions in defense of Iranian human rights defenders. For more information, please visit iranhumanrights.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Next, Vomina's intern and contributor, UC Berkeley student Sidney Johnson, speaks with Linda Dalal Swaya, the Lebanese-American artist, writer, cook, and illustrator, about her beautiful cookbook called Alice's Kitchen, My Grandmother Dalal and Mother Alice's Traditional Lebanese Cooking. Enjoy. I'm speaking with Linda Dalal Sawaya, author of the much-loved cookbook, Alice's Kitchen, My Grandmother Dalal and Mother's Alice's Traditional Lebanese Cooking, which is now in its fourth edition. She has lived in the U.S. all of her life, but is deeply connected to Lebanon, where her mother and her grandmother grew up. She joins us now over the phone from her home in Portland. Linda, welcome. Thank you so much. It's (laughs) great to be here. The first thing that struck me about going through your cookbook was how hungry I got. <laughs> I know. If you look at the book and you haven't eaten, it makes you start to salivate. <laughs> so I have to ask, why write this cookbook? The cookbook has a lot of family story in it, and I do tell the story of my interest in writing the book and how I got started. But in brief, I loved cooking as a child, and I begged my mom and grandmother to let me help them with food preparation, which was very labor-intensive, and it was a creative thing, and my mother and grandmother were both very creative, and I was a very creative child and ended up being an artist, and the cooking is just one of those art forms. And I moved away from home, so I'd call my mom and I'd ask her, how do you make this? You know, she'd verbally describe it, and I'd write it down, and that went on over many years, and I worked in publishing and worked on magazines and started working on book design. And the idea came to me to write a book. So way back in 1992, I came up with the first draft, only 100 copies, and it was 64 pages with a color cover, which were given to friends and family. You know, it was just a little sweet thing. People enjoyed it, but it was very small distribution. Well, then in 1994, I had a really amazing experience with a rejection letter. I had written to this magazine called Aramco World, which is published and distributed for free all over the world. And they write stories about things of interest in the Middle East. So I queried the magazine to write an article about the church and the icons and the mosaics. Of course, I was a bit naive in thinking that this magazine would be interested in a Christian subject, but... At the very last minute, before I sent off my query package to them, I inserted a copy of my cookbook just to show them that I could write. And the rejection letter, which I got, was sort of amazing because they said, well, thank you, we're not really interested in the story about the church, but we love your cookbook and we want to publish six pages in our magazine from your book. So that was kind of an amazing start. Indeed, yes. Your cookbook is really sort of, it sounds to me like a passion project, a way to celebrate your history and also share your history with a wide audience. It was totally a heart project, something I was so blessed to get to do with my mother. And so the edition in 1997 was self-published, and that was 
because I was a graphic designer and had worked in books, I was able to do my own self-publication. In 2005, I made a new and updated edition. I'm on the verge of creating something new, a new edition possibly in color, because I'm a photographer and I love taking beautiful pictures of food. The quality that struck me about your cookbook, too, is that it is timeless. So it doesn't matter when the first edition came out because the recipes are still beautiful and they're still delicious. You talked about how your mother was an intuitive cook, the way that she operated in the kitchen. She sort of just did it on a whim. Was that sort of difficult for you to write a recipe? Was that challenging? It wasn't necessarily on a whim, but the cooking traditions are passed down orally. There were no written recipes. So she learned from her mother, who learned from her mother. And a lot of people in the Middle East and a lot of people maybe from other cultures have really good oral memories. I'm not that way. My mother would remember how to do things. And when I would ask her, I would write them down. And that's one of the reasons I had to do a cookbook, because I just don't remember. So she did it. It was intuitive, but it was also, I mean, she'd say to me, you have to add enough salt. And so it was a challenge, definitely, to take her verbal instructions and notes that I made while cooking with her and put them into actual quantities like tablespoons and cups rather than a handful of this. But the other part of this is that Lebanese food is very, and Middle Eastern food in general, is very forgiving. I mean, things don't have to be exactly precise. And what I do say in the book is that, you know, there's a lot of variations from village to village and from the mountains to the coastal people, even in a tiny country like Lebanon, where, you know, it's not very big, but there are variations. I had one friend and reader who said, well, my mother never used cayenne pepper, and my mother used cayenne pepper a lot. You know, there are differences, and I tell people if they get the book and they're Lebanese, they should just mark it up and put in their own mother's version. It's got a lot of flexibility. Well, on the subject of flexibility, I'm curious to know how your mother's and your grandmother's cooking was modified or adapted or changed after they emigrated to the United States. They had to do modification because there weren't the same ingredients here. I mean, one of the things is baking Arabic bread, for example. You couldn't just go to this grocery store in the 1950s and buy a half a dozen pita bread. It just wasn't there. It wasn't available. So my mother had to learn how to bake bread. While in the village, they would make their bread dough. They didn't have an oven. And so they would take their dough to the village baker. So there was one baker, maybe two bakers in the village who would bake the bread and keep a portion of the bread that they baked as part of payment. Mom learned how to bake bread, not just making the dough, but how to, in Arabic bread, there's different kinds. Pita is a thicker, smaller loaf, whereas what's called chups mar'uk is a big, thin loaf. And my mother would twirl it on her arms, like you've seen pizza bakers do. That was quite a skill that she learned and taught herself. And we had a special oven, an old, beautiful Wedgwood gas stove that was in our basement that she would bake bread in. She would make, you know, stacks one foot high of these loaves of bread, and we'd eat them, and the next week or two weeks later, she'd be baking again. Other things, a leg of lamb, for example, in the village, 
you could just go to the butcher in the village and say, I want, you know, this cut. But, of course, that didn't exist here. So my mother and grandmother would spend tedious hours buying a full leg of lamb and cutting it up just the right way. There's different kinds of fat on lamb, and some of that fat can give it a really bad flavor that people associate maybe with a negative experience about lamb. But Lebanese food tends to be not so meat-heavy. When I wrote the book, actually, I had been vegetarian for many years, and so the book has a lot of vegan and vegetarian recipes, but I also included the recipes made by my family, the traditional chicken and lamb and a little bit of fish. This is interesting. So the lack of a butcher or a baker sort of created pressures for your family to learn new skills. And I'm wondering that as a young girl, did you learn also how to make bread? Did you follow the way of your mom and your grandmother and absorb these new traditions that they were making? Oh, yeah. I loved participating in the bread baking. My mom didn't let me do it because it was something an adult would do rather than a 10-year-old, but I bake bread now. The thing is, I'm gluten-free now, so I've been experimenting making gluten-free pita bread. Things have changed over the years, even since I wrote the book. If and when I do a new edition, I'll probably have a lot of gluten-free options in it because that's just the way things are happening nowadays. There's a lot of people that are intolerant of gluten. That's the thing. The cuisine adapts and changes with time. I was in Lebanon three years ago, and there's a restaurant I went to that was serving tabbouleh with quinoa instead of with bulgur, which is the way I've been making it, and it's wonderful. And I was so surprised to see a restaurant in Beirut serving it that way. Do you find that people are generally accepting of the way that people try to experiment with Lebanese food? I think Lebanese are very open-minded. You know, in the Middle East, there's many different countries. There's 22 countries that speak Arabic. Lebanon is a tiny one, but it's been one that's been more progressive, I would say. I mean, there's a mix there, a cultural mix. The food, though, when I was growing up, sometimes we'd call ourselves Syrian, and sometimes we'd say Lebanese. And Lebanon did used to be a part of Syria, and we'd call the bread Syrian bread. So the area has its own integrity and history. But a lot of the foods There was Turkish occupation for many years, and so there's a lot of food that spans from Turkey to Greece to Iran to, of course, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and North Africa as well. There's a lot of common foods. So it's a little tricky to say this is Lebanese, but I do because that's what I grew up with, you know? This reminds me of something that you wrote in your introduction, and it said that cooking with your mother gave you a sense of connection with our ancestors and our traditions. Can you elaborate more on that, about how cooking and your mother's cooking taught you about sort of a nascent identity and what it meant to be Lebanese, or just like you were saying, maybe also Syrian? Lebanese culture is very food-centric. Food is a way of expressing love. The mantra in the cookbook that my mother told me that I put on every two-page spread is, if you make it with love, it will be delicious. Your intention is really important. The food has a history, and there weren't Lebanese restaurants when I was growing up. There was just homemade food. People loved coming over to our house for dinner, and they loved the food, even though it was 
of course, mysterious to them. Now it's amazing. You find homeless everywhere. So it's kind of amazing how things have changed. But I did through the food, through the cooking. I had an interest in my parents' culture. Both of my parents came from the same village in Lebanon. And so after college, I went to visit. And it was really a life-changing trip. For one, it politicized me because I saw Palestinian refugees camped in the streets of Beirut, and I knew nothing about Palestine-Israel. So that trip politicized me. But also I was shown so much love. When I went to our village, people welcomed me with open arms and gave me amazing feasts of all of the things that I grew up with, which were basically the same. You know, they tasted the same, and it was just so familiar and so gratifying. And every time I've gone to Lebanon, I just come back so full of love. So food is the way that people do show love. You know, I would be walking down the street in the village and somebody I didn't even know, I'd be walking past their house and they'd invite me in for coffee and cookies. Or I'd be walking down the street in the village and some car would pull up and say, Linda Sawaya, come with us. And they would take me and feed me. So it's quite a marvelous culture. In your introduction, you talk about how fans of Alice's Kitchen, complete strangers, would write to you with familial affection. The magazine published my address. You know, then and even now, it's very difficult to find positive images of Arabs in the United States and in Western culture. There's so much discrimination and stereotyping. And so to read an article which had historic family photos. People recognized themselves and wrote me their family stories. It was very powerful. I have hundreds of letters from people over the years that have come across the book. And nowadays, there are many, many more Lebanese cookbooks out there. At the time when I did mine, there were maybe a couple of books. Now there's probably dozens. But my book still has a lot of things that most books don't have. There's how to cure olives, if you can get your hands on some olives, how to make Lebanese ice cream, how to make jibin, which is a basic farmer's cheese, how to make kata cheese, which we called arishe, which is used in some of our pastries. So even though my book has been around a long time, it's fairly comprehensive. I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to do this with my mom. She passed away in 2006. I worked on the most recent edition of the book with my mom before she died. But after we had gone on a trip to Lebanon, because she had not been since she was 16. So she was 88 years old in 1998. And I took her for three weeks and visited her village and it was quite a trip. We found the house she was born in, and we had lunch there. It was an amazing journey and something so fulfilling. It was sort of my life dream because back in 71, when I first went, I waited for three months for my parents to join me there, but my father got ill, and I ended up returning home with them never coming. The trip in 1998 which is almost 20 years ago, was really a beautiful thing to experience with my mom and going back to where she grew up and where my father grew up and my grandmother and ancestors. So it's been a very heartfelt and fulfilling project and such a blessing.
Well, I look forward to seeing the fifth edition when it does come out. It seems that you can almost chart your life through food in that way. I mean, we can trace your family history through that relationship, which is beautiful. You started to talk about the recipes that are in your book, and I'm wondering that if you could pick a favorite recipe or a recipe that defines you, what would it be? (laughs) Well, there's one recipe that I love and have loved always, and it's called mshadra, which is lentils and rice with caramelized onions. It's really easy to make. And being raised Eastern Catholic, we would fast on Fridays. We wouldn't eat meat back in those days. Meat was not allowed. And mshadra was one of the things that I loved. And we would have it pretty often, maybe weekly. And everybody just loves it. And when I went to Lebanon and I was a vegetarian, my cousins said, we want to cook for you, what would you like? And I said, I'd love a mshadra. And they said, oh, no, no, we can't make that because it's not good enough. It's basically a peasant food. And so I begged her, I said, please, would you please, I won't tell any." She said, okay, if you don't tell anyone, I'll make it for you. And she did make it, and it was fabulous. And we served this dish with a salad that has a garlic, lemon, and olive oil dressing. And when I was little, I would have the mshadra on the plate and I'd put the salad on top and for me the mshadra was brown and so it was like the soil and the vegetables on top were the vegetables growing in the garden so I had a little metaphor about it. Linda Dallal Suwaya is the author of Alice's Kitchen, My Grandmother Dallal and Mother Alice's Traditional Lebanese Cooking, the cookbook featuring her family's traditional recipes. The cookbook is now in its fourth edition. For more information, visit womina.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you.